Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, first of all, thanks again for all the feedback and ratings and whatever on the podcast lately. We really appreciate it. And again, if you're not actually subscribed to the podcast but are just listening to it on the TechDirt website or because someone sent you an episode, please think about subscribing via whatever podcasting app you happen to use. Uh, it gets you the podcast first each week and make sure that you don't miss any episodes. Now, on to today's topic. Patents and patent trolling are obviously a fairly common topic on TechDirt itself and directly on this podcast. And one of the things that we've discussed repeatedly uh, is looking at ways to deal with patent trolls that don't necessarily involve convincing Congress to pass much needed patent reform. Now that's obviously very important too, but unfortunately Congress keeps dragging its feet. Uh, in the past, we've discussed various efforts like defensive patent aggregating, patent pledges and agreements, and even patent insurance. Now, all of these are interesting, but there's another thing that some companies can do as well, and that's to hit back hard on patent trolls when they get hit with a trolling lawsuit or threat. Uh, this strategy was one that was loudly endorsed by online electronics reseller Newegg in the past, and they promised to never settle with patent trolls and to fight them as long as they can go. Um, they went through a bunch of lawsuits, and the strategy seems to have paid off. Newegg has pointed out that patent trolls no longer go after Newegg for some reason or another, <laughs> mainly because they know that the general strategy of trying to extract an easy payment is not going to work and may backfire impressively. And now it appears that another company is embracing this approach to some extent, the online CDN security company Cloudflare, that tons of web websites, including TechDirt, rely on to keep their sites running reliably. Uh, recently got initiated into the uh, unfortunate world that pretty much all successful tech startups reach eventually, which is getting sued by a patent troll. But not just any patent troll, Cloudflare was sued by Blackbird Technologies, which is a trolling operation formed by two former patent attorneys who have been buying up patents and threatening and suing a ton of companies in a variety of different industries. In reviewing the case and uh, Blackbird Technologies itself, Cloudflare realized that something even more nefarious than standard issue patent trolling was likely happening. Blackbird Technologies appear to be really purchasing the right to sue rather than actually outright purchasing the patent and then sharing the proceeds with the previous patent holder. And it appeared to take a sort of Schrodinger's cat approach to defining its own business. When it wanted to appear like a law firm, it claimed that it was a law firm. But when it didn't want to do that, such as when it was violating some pretty standard ethics rules for lawyers, it suddenly magically insisted that it was just a private company and not a law firm. Cloudflare has responded to the lawsuit by arguing that Blackbird is very much a law firm in disguise and is violating some key ethics rules, and it's filed some bar complaints against the two lawyers uh, who founded the company. At the same time, it set up a prior art bounty 
to invalidate Blackbird's patents. Setting up a prior art contest of some sort and bounty is not really all that uncommon. We've seen others do it, but again, Cloudflare stepped it up uh, just a bit. Uh, rather than just invalidating the patent used in the case against Cloudflare, the company is asking for prior art to invalidate all of Blackbird's patents uh, and to basically make the entire business worthless. Now, joining us today uh, on the TechDirt podcast to talk about this strategy and the problems of patent trolls in general is Cloudflare's general counsel, Doug Kramer. Welcome, Doug. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Um, so let's start with, uh, I guess, the obvious question leading into this, having having just gone through all of this. Uh, what, what made you guys decide to take this particular approach uh, after getting sued by Blackbird? Well, I'm not sure that there's sort of one easy cause to that, but, but as you sort of reviewed there in your introduction. I mean, the, the, the problem of dealing with patent trolls is very well known in the industry. And I, I think the folks at Cloudflare actually viewed it as a little bit of a, a, a fortunate situation that it, it took this long in our, our growth for us to be hit with our, our first case. So we'd been thinking for a while about how we'd address this. And part of the fundamental problem of, of the, the, the patent troll situation is that there are a bunch of, you know, what seems like the logical responsive step leads you down a bunch of sort of short what seem at the moment logical decisions down a road in a direction that you don't want to go. And so we thought very hard, not so much about what's the next step we want to take, but where do we want to be as a company as we continue to grow? And then what's the best way for us to get to that state of affairs? Um, we also had, you know, an understanding from, from our peers in the industry and all of that, that this is a, a serious concern for a lot of folks. And because of the scope that our company has, you know, our, you know, mantra to build a better internet at Cloudflare really means that it's not only our health uh, that will determine our own ultimate success, but really the, the health of the entire environment of folks that are online. Because if there's not a sort of a healthy, innovative tech and, and internet uh, industry, then our, you know, that, that causes limitations for us as well. Yeah, um, and how much of how much of the decision in terms of how to react was was driven by the nature of of Blackbird Technologies itself and sort of the way that that they've acted? You know, I think as we looked at every step in this process, we we, we were sort of further convinced, and um, it, it became clear that that this was the right path. I mean, if you look at just the underlying claim itself, it's it's based on a patent that really doesn't have much to do with what our technology is. Um, and, and so that the, the merits of the underlying case were strong to begin with, our, our, our arguments were. Sure. And then, you know, when you looked at the nature of what Blackbird was, was doing and the way that they were trying to sort of, you know, pour gas on, on, on this problem, um, that sort of further, you know, made us think about, um, you know, the way that we would respond to this, that, that really almost every sort of feature of this that we saw sort of encouraged us to, you know, try to do more to address this situation as best we could. And um, in setting up the the bounty, I know that um, you originally set up it was a fifty thousand dollar bounty that I think was was split fifty fifty. Um, you know, one for trying to invalidate specifically the patent that was used against you, and then um, the other half would be for any of of the other patents. I think you listed them all out, mm -hmm. um, and then there was a matching grant, uh, I think, by an anonymous donor at some point. Um, for another fifty thousand dollars, which which you dedicated to, to um, you said you had enough sort of prior art for for the patent being used against you, and so it was more directed towards towards the other ones. How how is that going? What's the status of of 
so the, it's it's, the it's going research. yeah it's going very well to clarify just a little bit i think of the first sure. 50 i think we said about twenty thousand of that would go towards okay. the, the one used against us so it's not quite a 50 50 split you know we we lawyers have to be precise about these things so people <laughs> get the wrong impression um and then thirty thousand we reserved for the other and then just with you know with the effort in general not only to find the prior art but also then to sort of take action to try to invalidate some of those patents um, we were very surprised. I mean, I was surprised across the board how universally and overwhelmingly positive the response was to what we did. I, I didn't really see or hear a dissenting voice in, in any of the response. And not just was it sort of, you know, 100 to, to zero in some regards, but again, the, the enthusiasm we saw. And so as, as you suggested, in, in the few days after we sort of initially made clear what our intentions were, had someone write in and say, you know, I, I believe very strongly in this myself, and I'm willing to sort of you know, put my money where my mouth is and, and double the, the financial part of, of the efforts that you all are putting forward. Um, so we were very encouraged by that. So that, that was, we were really sort of um, energized by that, but it was also just feedback that we got from other folks in the industry, feedback we got from commentators uh, who watch this space um, that, that really suggested that in, in, in responding to, you know, this issue for us in the way that we thought appropriate, there was also a lot of external support for that. Cool. And and in terms of the the results directly so far in terms of prior art that's been turned up, how's that been looking? Yeah. So I don't know the, the latest numbers. I think we've had at least about 200 separate entry and uh, submissions. I think there are, a total, there are a total of 38 Blackbird patents, the one filed against us and then 37 others. There have been a total of about um, 200 submissions. Some of them sort of clump around some more than others. We'll be releasing probably in the next couple of weeks a, a scorecard of sort of where things are so that people who still want to sort of to submit prior art to claim part, part of the bounty can find the places where there may be the best opportunity to do that. But um, with regard to our own, uh, the patent that we're facing in our case, we've been very uh, satisfied with the, the prior art that we've seen submitted to date and, and are, are moving forward uh, you know, with that as, as part of the invalidation strategy in our own case, without, we don't feel having to do much more of a search. We think that the crowd is taking care of that for us. And we also see a couple of other um, patents that about which we've received both in number and quality, some really strong um, prior art as well that we'll be starting to, to talk very specifically about in the upcoming weeks as we, as we start to, to take action on, on those patents as well. You know, and it, it's, Part of this has been people who are motivated by this and have got up and, and done a search, but part of the search we've been gratified to see are people who have worked in this industry for decades and say things like, you know, I worked on something 20 years ago, you know, <laughs> right. uh, six or seven years before this patent was ever issued, and then, of course, 20 years before Blackbird ever decided to buy the patent. Um, that, that is prior art on this thing. And so it was, uh, it was gratifying to see so many folks in the community get, get you know, engaged in that way. Um, not only as part of the search, but really going back and talking about their own experience. And I wanted to dig in a little bit, you know, I sort of mentioned a little bit in the, in the opening um, about Blackbird and sort of the specific nature in, in that they appear to not really be buying the patent. I mean, I guess technically they're buying the patent, but, you know, for, for I think in your case, you, it was like a dollar they, they paid for the patent. Um, and it seems clear that they're, you know the the previous owner, whoever's you know selling it to Blackbird, still has a financial interest um, in the patent. Um, 
and you know we'd seen you know i when i wrote about what you guys were doing i sort of compared it to to a copyright trolling company from a few years back called right heaven that was doing something very similar with copyrights where it was sort of buying the copyright but but not really uh that the original copyright holder still really controlled all of the issues and basically um this firm right haven could sue and then was sharing the money back with the the original copyright holder um now i know when I, I spoke to, to folks at Cloudflare when this all came out, um, you know, there was some concern expressed about why that is particularly nefarious yeah. and particularly problematic. Um, did you want to maybe explain why why you find that so troubling? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to. I mean, listen, the, the, the fundamental problem with, with the patent troll situation or what they're able to take advantage of is, is frankly sort of a... a, a in, uh, evolutionary problem with the federal court system in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, if, if, even if you have, uh, whether it's a legitimate dispute or a frivolous one, federal courts take a very long time and cost a lot of money to get a decision, even in what should be the easy cases. And in some ways, this is uh, the, the situation that, that patent trolls have hacked, for lack of a better term, or maybe using a, a very appropriate one. And so what they do is, even if parties think they have, uh, they, they don't, fear the case brought against them. They don't think the other side has a case at all. To avoid that cost and expense, just because the federal court system does it in every case, they're willing to pay a lot of money. And over the years, that adds up to a whole lot of money, something like right. $30 billion by one estimate. Um, and, and so really what they're doing is, is, is taking advantage of that. And, and what Blackbird and the lawyers at Blackbird have done here is really stretch that even further. Um, and lawyers have this obligation to make sure that people with legitimate disputes uh, have their cases heard and that they're represented appropriately. It's not really the role of, of lawyers to insert themselves in the dispute. And that's why we have ethics laws. It's not just, you know, you, you pass the bar exam and, and then you sign a piece of paper and go make all the money you can. I mean, we do have these ethical obligations to be officers of the court and make sure the system operates properly. And, in, and that's why you can't do things like um, buy a cause of action and for yourself and so you can make the money yourself. You're supposed to be representing a client and, and doing things like that. Um, so as we looked at Blackbird and saw that really the staffing of Blackbird is six or seven lawyers and then a handful of junior analysts that are really just a year or two out of college or still in college. Um, that's how they're staffed. They don't have any product other than these patents that they buy. And when they're buying them, they're not paying uh, proper consideration for them, it seems. They're paying a very low amount up front and then sharing the results of the, the lawsuit with these folks. And so it really seems a system that is designed to hide its true intent and where lawyers are trying to take advantage of flaws in the judicial system that are making it difficult for people to access the system. And when you add all of that up, that is the exact opposite of what the ethical rules that, that we lawyers are, are committed to are intended to promote. Um, and that's why I think we were particularly frustrated by this because, again, you're, you're taking the way in which the court system isn't doing as good a job as it could in giving people resolution of these matters and then just pouring salt or, or gasoline or whatever you want to, whatever metaphor you want to run with onto that. And, and particularly here where there's there's barely even the pretense that, that there's anything but but lawyers doing this for themselves, um, that, that was particularly problematic to us. Yeah. And so looking at sort of the the wider issue related to 
dealing with patent trolls. I mean, patent trolls have obviously been a problem. I mean, you know, we've been talking about them for, for basically 20 years, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's been an ongoing problem and various attempts to sort of deal with it. And, um, you know, on the legislative front, not very much has, has been done at all. There have been obviously various proposals, um, some better than others, um, none of which have really gone very far, specifically on the troll problem. There's been other other elements of patent reform that have gone through. Um, you know, and, and for the most part, people have been relying on the courts um, and thankfully a Supreme Court that has, has been willing in the past decade or so to really push back on, on some of the excesses, um, mainly of patent trolling, including a very recent decision that hopefully has stopped the ability to just file lawsuits in East Texas where so many of these, these lawsuits are filed. But do you have a general sense on what you'd like to see in terms of to, to fix the patent trolling problem? Right. So I think there are two aspects to the fix, right? And, and you just spent some time talking about one, which is you change the system. Mm -hmm. um, the other is you change behavior within the system um, to sort of nullify some of the negative effects of, of the, the system. And so let me talk about the second one first, because I think that's where we're more involved right now. And, and part of what allows this to happen, as I said, is sort of a system that's taking too long to reach these decisions. And so it's creating this negative downward spiral where the incentive structure um, unless you're looking in the real, in the very long term, uh, encourages you to take all of these short steps that just continue to feed the beast, right? Which and is, so, and just to clarify for, for people, it's basically yeah. to, to pay to settle, to right. just, to get it out of court and, and just get it over with. Because no. it's, cheap, it's cheaper often to settle than to fight the lawsuit, even if you win, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I can, I can you know, because we had to live through this decision, the, you know, we uh, and and not to speak specifically about this case, sure, you know, or, or any anything at all. But but most cases in federal court take eighteen months to two years at a minimum, depending on what sort of counsel you get. Uh, can have costs that run into the millions, and a lot of times settlements can be, you know, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars, which might sound like a lot of money until you put it up against uh, birth right. uncertainty and you know more than a million dollars. So. In any individual case, it always seems like a because even if you win the case, ultimately you've still spent that money and you don't necessarily right. get it back. Um, so, in almost all circumstances, it makes economic sense, uh, in the narrow sense, to go ahead and settle that case. Um, but that that's the behavioral side of this that 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 feeds that. The, the The structural side is is trickier because listen, there are legitimate patent disputes, and you know we ourselves, as as we have, have made clear in our writings are the beneficiaries of um, the, the confidence we have and the security we have by having a lot of our technology secured in patents. Um, and there are businesses, operating businesses every day who have disputes about whether or not um, they, they, you know, you look at the, the, the sort of Waymo Uber, Uber battle right now, which mm -hmm. is a very legitimate question as to which company has, has which rights in that marketplace. Um, we don't begrudge cases like that at all, but there needs to be a mechanism for courts to discern quickly the difference between those sorts of cases and cases where um, we've seen the patent trolls really explode by as much as 500% over the past couple of years 
because the courts aren't good at about sorting those out as, at an early cheap stage. And so, you know, one of the fixes and, and, and statutes have tried to do this is to find ways to maybe separate the wheat from the chaff on that and figure out what are the indelible marks of sort of a, a serious dispute between operating entities that are trying to define who legitimately is operating in different parts of the marketplace, as opposed to people who are merely trying to, um, you know, without running a business, without being heavily involved, going and getting old patents and, and you know, trying to assert them broadly. Um, and, and that's what I think where, where statutes might operate best is, is in trying to, to think about in a broad sense how you find those defining characteristics. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the, the problem is, and, and to some extent, I think you got at this with, with your previous answer, is that the lines between some of these things are complicated, right? And so it's, it's often difficult. And, and this is something that comes up all the time, you know, people talk about, you know, problems with, um, you know, non-practicing entities uh, suing over patents, and then suddenly you have universities who say, "But, but, you know, we're a non-practicing entity, but we're doing research, and then you know, we're we're trying to license our patents." And so, um, you know, if, if it's just targeting non-practicing entities, then you have you, you know universities that get upset. In other cases, you have you know the pharmaceutical industry which which gets upset. And so, you know, one of the things that 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 we sometimes struggle with in sort of trying to to sort all this stuff out is you know, it's it's one thing to say that you can sort of draw lines and figure out, you know, who's a serious actor and who's, you know, sort of just abusing the system. It's much more difficult to, to actually draw those lines, I think. Sure, but I, and, and you get in those sorts of um, laundry, line drawing problems all the time, but I think that there, there's more practical things happening in this space that might make it easier to do because, you know, I hear the university point, but then I'm very well aware from, you know, sort of previous time that I spent working in the government, that, that almost every university system that gets any sort of research and development funding has technology transfer offices or has sort of small business incubators um, where they're actively engaged in trying to turn those patents into businesses in the marketplace uh, from an early stage. And I, I think you could distinguish that from a lot of the patents that you see um, asserted in these uh, patent troll lawsuits. Um, mm -hmm. So that there are ways to look at the activity of the folks involved, but this is, you know, the, the different ways in which um, the incentive structure is really tilted in favor of these patent trolls is that in most cases, the, the only evidence that they need to produce are the four you know, corners of the document of, of the patent itself. And the question of, you know, how it was developed or, or what's been done with it in the time since it was granted under a lot of current legal doctrines is, is you know, argued to be largely irrelevant because the, the document sort of speaks for itself. And, and there are ways to sort of put some of those standards and questions uh, back into mm -hmm. the issue that might change that incentive structure a bit. So I, 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 there are a lot of cases where I'm, I'm willing to sort of sit back and say, boy, it's really hard to define, you know, <laughs> this or that abstract term. I, I don't think the, the, the issues here are quite that abstract. I, I think there's, there's some effort that could be made there. But, and again, even as you're sort of dealing with or struggling with that, there's still you know, that, that still gets to how the, the structure is set up and, and there's still activity you can do within that structure to either further encourage or, or discourage right. this sort of behavior. I mean, do, do you, you know, one of the things that's often raised is, is the idea of fee shifting, which is basically, you know, if you file one of these lawsuits and, and lose, then the, you know, the loser has to pay. And that's, that's been controversial, but it also seems like something that would solve some, a, a large part of the, 
um, the problem that, that we discussed earlier of, you know, even if you win, you lose because you had to pay so much money. If there's fee shifting involved and the patent troll would have to pay for filing a, you know, a bogus patent lawsuit, do you think that, that would make a big difference? Well, certainly, that's. I, I think that's something worth talking about in this context more than some. You know, the, the general prohibition, at least in the U.S. system, because it's not mm-hmm. it's not at all consistent around the world. We're actually more of an outlier on this. Yeah. But the prohibition in the U.S. system of collecting fees is to make sure that maligned parties, you know, powerless parties who may not have money, still have their day in court and get a chance to a fair hearing, right? And and there's certainly nothing wrong with those principles. But where you have a system um, where you see such widespread and pervasive uh, examples of of abuse of that system, you know, then maybe you want to have that start to have that conversation or where, you know, when you do have, you know, operating companies that that have, um, you know, investment in these sorts of things who might then have the resources to be able to try these cases. I think, yeah, I think there are some distinguishing factors in this area that make that more of a conversation than it might just be in the in the general area of, of fee shifting in courts. Yeah. Um... Another issue that's come up a lot around this is is basically how do many of these patents get approved in the first place? <laughs> because you sure. know there are lots of them that are that seem really really broad and and you know you, you kind of question how could the the patent office have assumed that this was you know both new and and not obvious to those skilled in the art as they as they say. Um, do you see any solutions on that end in terms of actually getting the patent office to do a better job up front in terms of approving or rejecting patents? Well, that certainly is an inflection point, right? So it's it's worth as we think about these, you know, reform efforts and what should be done in this space that making sure that the Patent and Trademark Office has the resources and, and, and the competence they need uh, to, to do these things properly. Um, even in the best of circumstances, uh, to some extent, it may require more of a crystal ball than people are equipped with. And, and I think the Patent and Trademark Office probably has that understanding now that there's just still so much they can't know. Whereas back in, you know, especially in the 90s in the dot-com boom, they, you know, sort of thought, well, this is what it is and this is the way this this place will be, having no idea the, the changes and the growth and the complexity that would happen over the next 10 or 15 years. So even if you had, you know, perfect um, sort of competence back then, uh, not knowing where the market was going to go, um, you know, they, they might have made the same mistake. So I, I think it it may just be in the in the patent granting process to 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 make sure that that there's as much competence as possible, but there's also this sort of foresight and understanding of the limitations of of what we can understand of, about where these technologies will go. Um, those are those are difficult things to fix, but but we also shouldn't just throw up our arms and and, <laughs> and deny them of resources that allow a backlog and then. Sure. Sort of, you know, uh, uh, reviewers that that may not be as 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 technically competent in these areas as they can be, and that's that's a tough challenge. There's there's a big market out there for for people with with tech savvy, and and I'm not sure that most of those folks are looking to go be examiners at the patent and trademark office right now. So, you know, we we need to be a, aggressive about trying to do that and make sure we have some of those folks there because it is so important to the industry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's another area that sort of the more you explore, the the trickier it seems to get. I mean, you know, one of the one of the problems and uh, that's been sort of looked at and studied is is the idea that you know because the patent office just got this huge glut and and backlog in in patents, uh, 
it, you know, in order to try and figure out how to clear that out, the easiest way to clear out the glutton patents was just to approve a patent and, you know, figure that the courts would sort it out later. Um, and that's obviously created all sorts of problems. So, you know, it, it felt like every time, you know, the patent office sort of took it on as a challenge to decrease the backlog in approving patents, suddenly you would get this, you know, massive influx of really bad, really broad patents. And so it's, 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 it's a very tricky problem to figure out how do you, how do you balance that? And, and I, you know, having more good examiners, I think would help, but also, you know, one of the problems, um, and, and I'm just sort of going off on tangents here but but these these are interesting to me at least <laughs> um is you know you know for a while people thought for the most part that software was not patentable and then you had a few cases um in the 90s that sort of shifted that and so suddenly you had this big influx of people you know a lot from the dot-com boom um the original dot-com boom and bubble and you know just sort of throwing patents out there and there were no sort of previous patents that they were building on and and often the examiners you know, would use earlier patents as a basis as to whether or not there was prior art, and they wouldn't, or in some cases are forbidden at looking at, you know, what's actually happening on the internet, for example. Right. Um, and, and so that led to all of these patents being granted, and you just had this massive mess of, of broad, and in often cases, you know, obvious or, you know, patents or, or things that, you know, have clearly been done before, or that were done in just a slightly different way, they just sort of added the kind of on the computer um, to the patent, and you would get a patent on it. Um, and so, you know, figuring out how you stop that problem would would be useful. I know that's not your responsibility now, yeah, but, but I mean, you you raise a number of good points there because I think you you could say that listen, when you're in this place where where you what 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 they're attempting to patent is software or is something you know a process patent, for example, even if it's not technical, um, you know that that it's just a trickier thing to do that, and so there should be standards. You know, at the at the patent and trademark office, be particularly careful with with that. But you you raised a, n a number of excellent points and. In, in your discussion there, because it's exactly right that when you work in a, a large organization, a lot of times your success or failure in the moment, whether or not you get a bonus or a promotion is, is your production. And your production is probably the number of patent decisions you push through. So there's always going right. to be an incentive to just sort of say, yeah, this, this looks good. I'll, I'll kick it a bit, but then I'll move it forward rather than doing the hard work of, of, of figuring all that out. So you, you have that dynamic, but that's also why, you know, so, so there are challenges here, but it's not like we have stood still or we need to stand still. I mean, you look at the IPR process that was just, you know, developed, I think it was 2011 or 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for folks who don't know, that's an administrative process at the patent and trademark office that allows them to go back and, and, and look at the patent and say, you know, we really shouldn't have issued this in the first place, or we shouldn't have issued it, you know, this broadly or, or things like that. And, and that's with the, with the impossible dynamic, maybe not impossible, but quite tricky dynamic um, coming in, especially with regards to things like software patents. Um, it's, it's that, that strikes me as a very good idea is to provide a, uh, an easier, quicker, more cost-effective review by the group that looked at it the first time around, who now has a bit of the benefit of, um, you know, hindsight that they wouldn't have had at the time or, or, or a, a party that's on the other side of the issue that can point right. out some of those developments on the internet that they, you know, may not have an incentive to go and, and do all on their own. Because again, when you're applying for the patent up front, it's sort of an audience of one um, and they get to sort of show you what they think is important and then it's on you to go find everything else. But when you have an adverse party that does a, a little bit of a better job clarifying um, the arguments that, that may be on the other side there for the, for the patent reviewer. 
Yeah, and and the IPR process or interparties review, as they call it, is is uh, is is really important. I think it is that is a big innovation um, that has been super helpful in the, in the last few years. And and you know one of the nice things about it is even if you have, so you know it, it is still a bit of a pain for for those who have to go through it, but it's much less of a pain. Um, and it it also in some ways acts as as something of a filtering mechanism where you know even if lots of patents are approved at the, the first stage, the fact that you can, you know, the, the problematic patents that are actually being asserted and, and used in litigation can go through this um, IPR process, I think helps weed out some of those. Now, it should also be mentioned that, that that's being challenged as to whether or not that's even constitutional. And I, I think the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case now that will determine whether or not the IPR process is even constitutional. Um, so there's, there's a a chance, hopefully a small one, <laughs> that the Supreme Court might do away with the IPR process, and then we're kind of back to square one in terms of you know reviewing patents post grant. No, um, you're, you're you're exactly right about that. The court did grant um, cert on that last week, which suggests that at least four judges voted to sort of re-examine what had been a, a settled issue when it came to IPR. So um, we expect to be very much involved in in lending our voice because we we agree with you i think the ipr process is a really good answer to this problem where you know as we said a lot of the 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 sort of unwanted dynamic here is that the cost of federal court litigation is so high that any settlement even a pretty significant one you know looks like a good deal in comparison and the ipr really allows you to bring down so much so that the merits of your claim really don't matter because the odds are are you know the difference between the the expense and the settling it are so different. But the IPR brings the, the ceiling of that down considerably and normalizes a little bit better whether or not people are making decisions based on the merits. So it's, it, it strikes me as a bit, I don't know if irony is the right word here or whatever, that, that a problem that's really created by the cost and delay, you know, created to some extent by the cost and delay of the federal court system, that the courts would be considering um, a decision in which they would say, yeah, actually, we're the the only way to get a decision here is to go to federal court, and you have to have a you know, a jury <laughs> trial and and go through all those steps to, to get a fair hearing here. It it strikes me as a um, you know rather than sort of going and, and and straightening out some of the the problems with with federal litigation and and streamlining it so people really can use the court system to effectively you know defend or litigate their rights. That the answer here is going to sort of let the problem continue to persist, but then also say that it is the only recourse for a lot of problems. So it's, you know, that's the oil states decision um, or case from below that's up on appeal. And, and we expect to track that and, and, and be involved in an amicus brief or whatever to, to make clear, you know, the point of view that companies like ours have with regard to that uh, option. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be, that's going to be an important case. I mean, I, it'll probably basically be, you know, maybe a year or so until there's actually a decision on that, but um, definitely an important one to to follow. Um, just going back to to sort of your situation and and what you're facing now, um, how much and if you can say how much of sort of your decision in thinking about this was was similar to what you know Newegg has said very clearly, which is they knew that sort of being publicly aggressive against patent trolls that have gone after them would would scare off other patent trolls from from suing them. Um, how much did, did that sort of factor into your thinking? Well, I mean, we, it's, it's difficult for us to control what, what other people are going to think or decide sure. to do. 
Um, so I don't think we ever ground our decision in, in that sort of calculus. Also, the incentive structure being the way that it is for patent trolls and how little they have to invest to take folks on, it, 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 it's, it's difficult to figure out how to, to push that incentive structure completely in the, different, in, sure. in the other direction. But two things we did know is that, you know, again, the, the, if we were only looking at the short-term decisions, that that wasn't going to solve our problem. And further, if we were... Um, we, we saw the general impact on, on the industry. And as I expressed before, you know, to some extent, we, we sort of look at a lot of firms who get sued very early, um, who may not be able to, you know, have to settle because otherwise they may not survive if they had a, you know, a two-year case hanging over their heads as they were just trying to, you know, do funding rounds and things like that. Um, and so really for the health of the industry and the health of the internet, we thought this was also a good sort of corporate citizen thing to do. So that th those are the, the motivations that really drove um, the 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 approach and the response that that we've had in this case. Cool, cool. It's um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just sort of fascinated in general by like the different ways that different companies are are responding to it. And I know, like, you know, on the the flip side of that, companies, I, at least some companies that I've spoken to that have decided to just settle because it's cheaper, then suddenly find themselves magically hit up by by more patent trolls or the same patent troll who's discovered a new patent that they might, uh, you know, that they might infringe upon, or at least they'll claim that they infringe upon. And so it becomes a sort of feeding frenzy where, you know, it's like, you know, if you respond to spam, you suddenly get a lot more spam. And so I know at least some companies have found that if they give in to patent trolls, they suddenly find themselves targeted by more patent trolls. But, you know, again, you're right that there's, there's a whole bunch of different incentives there and it's not always easy to... Yeah, if there was an easy, consistent answer and sort of one size fits all, I think, I think you know, this problem would have gone away a, a long time ago. <laughs> um, so I think it's, you know, as we've discussed, there are so many different facets to this issue, uh, none of which are sort of easily solved, um, that, you know, we, we, they're not easy decisions. They're very, you know, um, difficult and it's a big commitment of, of time and, and resources, but, uh, but yeah, we were thinking hard about the, the best way to approach it. Yeah, well, well, I certainly appreciate it, and I think it's it's good. I think it's good to see more companies sort of pushing back and and taking a stand and doing things publicly because you know it's this is this is a problem. And even though we've been dealing with it, you know, especially in the internet space for for really sort of somewhere between fifteen and twenty years since it it started to go crazy in the early two thousands. You know, I, I still think it's good to, to get more people aware of, of, of what, what a problem it is and how badly it needs to be fixed. And so I certainly um, I'm always interested in seeing what different companies are doing and, and really appreciate the kinds of stuff that, that you guys have done, have just started. And, and I assume, you know, more may come as, as you continue to do stuff or if you get involved in, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court case on IPR and, and, and whatever else. Um, so, so, uh, Thank you <laughs> for, for doing that. And, and thank you also for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, I don't know if you have any sort of final words on, on patent trolls and, and the situation. No, I, I just thank you for your interest. I mean, I think as you hit on, one of the most important things is this is, you know, this is a big issue that is very persistent. And so one of the last things we can do is sort of, you know, take it for granted or just sort of let it die down. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. And this has been a great conversation. We had on a, a lot of different uh, topics and, and strategies and thoughts in a, in a pretty brief period of time. At least it felt brief to me. It may not feel brief <laughs> to you or your listeners, but it was a, it was, it was a great conversation.
No, I think I think it was good, and I think people will will appreciate it. So thanks thanks again for taking the time, and uh, we'll certainly be following uh, what you're doing and the case and Blackbird Technologies and what's happening with them as well. We'll be following that closely on the site and and perhaps on future podcasts as well. So um, this was great; it was a fun conversation, and uh, thanks thanks for joining us. And uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks to everyone who's listening for joining us as well, and we'll be back next week. Thanks. Someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh.